Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. Really delighted to have Ronnie Bell Sylvester on the show today. She is the founder of Good Neighbor Law, along with her husband, and also an organization called Land and Water USA. She lives in Colorado and is very proud to let people know that she is a full-time mother and homemaker, that she is a farm girl and a wife, and that she is fighting on behalf of and for land and water rights in the United States of America. She ran for governor of the state of Colorado and did not make it through, but we know that her run is a valiant run, and she's looking to deliver in the right and most important things in the United States, which have to do with land and water and resources. I really wanted to talk with her because I'm very interested in land and water rights. Many people in the U.S. are experiencing so-called water shortages, and there is some kind of tricky thing going on that has been going on in the United States, which is the confiscation of water and water rights. Even for people who own their own water rights are having their water rights confiscated, including their land. So Ronnie is a real advocate of property protection, and she's been a listener of It's Rainmaking Time and have recommended some wonderful guests for us. It's my great pleasure and honor to welcome Ronnie Bell Sylvester to It's Rainmaking Time. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon, Kim, and thank you so much. I appreciate your having me on your show. You provide a very valuable service to so many people, and I appreciate that, Kim. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about Land and Water USA Talk about your site and what it's there to do. Give the listener a context. My husband and I have spent the past 10 to 15 years finding the best and the brightest, most nonpartisan or bipartisan scientists, educators, attorneys, doctors, people in almost every field. Policy research analysts are kind of the foremost. And over that period of time, we have vetted them and have let the old crew vet the new crew, you might say, the new kid on the block, so that we always have a really solid core group of people that our legislators, our policymakers can actually go to for some straight answers and the facts and the science. I think that many people in the United States are so busy either struggling economically or trying to get ahead economically and prosper that a lot of things are just not focused on, such as water. And it isn't until there's an actual shortage or a declared shortage that people even start to think about it. What's your real position and your real take on water in the United States of America, including water rights? Share a little bit about that. Well, water rights, it sounds very boring. If you'll pardon the reverse term, it sounds very dry. (laughs) But it is, in fact, probably the sexiest, most sizzling argument in the U.S. today because it is our lifeblood. It is the foundation upon which America has been built. It's the reason that America is great because we have the opportunity to acquire and enjoy water as vested property. What does that mean? You've made a distinction here already. What? Yes. Go ahead. Water becomes a property when a person puts that water to beneficial use under the historic statutes, our constitutions, etc. Individuals and entities own the beneficial use of water. They don't own the actual water. They own the beneficial use of that water, and they have to be grandfathered in, so to speak. And now all the states that are east of the 100th meridian are under what is called English riparian water law, which is considerably different than the states west of the 100th meridian, which are under the Spanish or the prior appropriation law. The English law is basically where the... Government does have a little bit more control of that water, but the entities still own the beneficial use of that water. Whereas in the West or the arid states, the prior appropriation is based on first in time, first in right, goes with the flow. In other words, from the genesis of the water or the headwaters of whatever, the Colorado River, the South Platte River, 
whoever put that water to beneficial use first has a vested property right to that water. We had Angus, what is his last name? Angus McIntosh, yes, on. I think it's very important and very astute to lay that out right at the beginning. So how does one identify who has been the first to use it beneficially? Well, you take Colorado as an example. Water was developed for the purpose of agriculture. In other words, water was developed to grow a blade of grass. And then that blade of grass goes to the mouth of a cow or to grow a crop, to grow food. And so it became a real priority. And I think probably in most states, it became a priority to grow forage. I know that sounds maybe a little crude, but it is, you know, forage could be anything, any kind of an agricultural crop. So the people who came to the arid states actually developed the in-stream flows in a lot of these waters by their irrigation and canals and so forth and so on. So historically, for example, I'll use the South Platte River, it dried up about Kersey, Colorado. Now, I know your listeners don't know where that is, but let's just say that a stream that generates in the mountains it does have a point upon which it does dry out, depending upon the precip, the snowpack. So it does, in fact, dry out. But with the advent of the development of irrigation and canals in this first part or the upper part of the genesis of the headwaters, it developed a stream. And then as time went on and the stream was further developed down, it pushed the stream non-historically past Kersey, past Sterling, past Julesburg, and across the border into Nebraska. Now, some streams, like the Colorado River, it has an incredible flow in that it reaches all the way from Colorado's headwaters to the Baja, California. Are you aware that there is a kind of water that is independent of the aquifers that is below the ground? We have visited about this, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, There are people that I have met in my lifetime over the last 10 years, and some I didn't meet because they passed on, but they were masters in their area. They were dowsers. They were also drillers, and they were able to find water in vaulted structures that have nothing to do with aquifers. In other words, water that's come from the rainfall or the snowmelt. And so, for example, as I am in California right now, you know, our governor declared a state of emergency here, as you know, because we don't have enough rainfall and snow melt. So it's a tricky thing because I find myself angry because I know that there is plenty of water in California, that California does not need to borrow, steal, take water from anywhere What I found out and what these people found out over the last hundred years is that the knowledge of this is very political because the water municipalities do not and the powers that be do not want the public to know that there's this much available water. It's kind of like creating a shortage of something so you can use it. Okay, and this is done in commodities. This is done with products where you create a short on it so that there's a bigger demand than there is a supply. But the reality is, and I can prove this on camera, that most of the geological cycle, as it's been translated through the universities, that there's new knowledge. It's actually ancient knowledge, but it's new knowledge. But unfortunately, because drilling is big business and water is big business and very political, Drillers get paid to drill whether they find water or not. So if you bring in, let's say, a tool like dousing and you say, look, we know you're used to going to the right to drill based on what the geologist tells you. okay? But sir or ma'am, if you keep drilling the way you're drilling, you're going to drill a lot of dry holes, which are very expensive for the customer. We want you to go 100 yards to the left. We want you to drill straight down 200 feet. We want you to stop. And that's where the water is. And this is the pressure. This is the amount. This is what's in the water. Da, 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 da. This is what I'm going through in California. I feel absolutely beside myself that I know what I know. And I know the people who do this and work with them. 
And our governor is telling everybody we're in a state of emergency when, in fact, the knowledge has been around forever. So I want to just disclose this to you on the show and to the listeners. The listeners have heard me if they've listened to the shows. But the reality is there's nothing like demonstration. So I'm on call to demonstrate what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. anywhere in the country or out of the country because I'm not willing to have the authorities – And the politicians tell the public that there's a shortage of something I know that there's a massive supply of. Well, Kim, that actually does make sense from a couple of different standpoints. First of all, it's my understanding that the water molecule never completely disappears. That's fascinating. Uh huh. And then second of all, that would explain the incredible system of cisterns and so forth that they once had, I believe it was in Petra. I'd have to look it up. Turkey in the oh, yeah. high dry desert oh, and yeah. the low dry desert. Libya as well. Libya, one of the reasons they went after Gaddafi was about water and gold. It wasn't even what we were being told. He uh-huh. owned one of the biggest water supplies that would handle water for Africa. That's well, how that huge totally, it is. It does. It totally makes sense because if you stop to think okay, where does that water go then? We think it evaporates. We think it completely disappears. No, it rises. I don't know what the technical scientific term, but I'll just use a mother term. It redevelops and it comes back down again in the form of snow or rain. Right. And so, but that's what we're used to. See, those are the sure. domains that you, you and I and the rest of the world are used to referring to when we think about water. So when you add the third domain which is water that's deep underground that is independent of the aquifers. It's inserting something into a paradigm. And the thing is, there's nothing like demonstration. Well, that would be really interesting to see because there's an area where I get confused. And that is the difference between closed aquifers and flow aquifers and how they replenish. For example, right here, We're sitting on several different, not layers, but they span out. And some of them are considered as closed. It's my understanding that maybe Denver might be sitting on a closed aquifer. Mm -hmm. And then some of the surrounding aquifers are tributary fed and so forth and so on. And so I do get a little confused about that because, again, where does the water molecule go? Well, that's a great question. I don't think I have an answer for that, but it's kind of like if someone sat down with us and said, look, we learned something really new about how to find and clean metals that's very different than the way the whole industry has been doing it for 50 years. It's like hearing that because it's a critical resource. Everybody needs it. Everybody wants it. And don't get me wrong. I'm very much for conservation of water and appreciating water and not wasting. So I'm there. But when you tell the mass public, that you're having to ration water, charge more money for water, dump chemicals in the water, and then tell everybody and have everybody believing we're in a drought. Yes, we're in a drought of rainfall. We are. I get that. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. It's like apples and oranges. Yes, we're in a drought with respect to rainfall. Yes, we're in a drought, therefore, also with regard to expecting snowmelt to be producing water. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're not in a drought with regard to water from the ocean, even though desalinization is very expensive, but so be it. Okay. We're not. And we're not in a drought about this other domain of water. That's an excellent point. You know what it reminds me of? It's kind of like the finance market. There's plenty of money around the world for everything. In fact, you and I live at a time where I happen to know for a fact, nobody needs to walk around thirsty. Nobody needs to be hungry and starving and dying. The reason that people are dying is political. We know that. And many of the listeners know that. It's political. Uh There's plenty of land. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of seeds. And believe it or not, there's plenty of water, even in the deserts, even in faulted structures. The problem is that there's a lot of people that believe that people deserve to die and suffer and not eat and not be able to drink. The are people, you talking about depopulation? Well, I'm, I'm, what I'm basically <laughs> saying is, yeah, is that there are people that feel that that's a critical thing and they want that to happen and therefore it's okay with them to cleanse the civilization. The condition 
is totally sortable. We can sort this. It's not a question that there isn't the will. It's that it's very dangerous to try to do something about it. Sure, you can take care of a few villages as long as you are not solving the global problem. That's so true, and that is so sad. And one of the best ways that a dictator can take over a country is to manipulate the resources, deny the use of those resources. And in the case of, for example, Saddam Hussein, he actually dried up a lot of egg so that he could relocate, shut down, etc., put at the mercy of those producers. Water has been used, I suppose, probably since the first man discovered it to manipulate people into doing what the manipulator wants, I guess. Tell the audience a little bit about what your understanding of what's going on in Colorado with regard to water rights. I understand there's a gentleman who was trying to see if he could get a portion of Colorado succeeded from the rest of the state. I don't know if you want to talk about that or mention something about it. I found it very interesting. Well, there's a disconnect between urban and rural and our legislative. And unfortunately, the 2013 session was probably in my 30 plus years of observing politics in Colorado was the most toxic session ever. It had to do with all emotional issues, issues that are a drain on our economic base in Colorado. We did not address any of the really pertinent issues that would be economic drivers or generate any revenue for the state. I found that to be probably the most tragic part of 2013. And as a result of that, there came an effort, you might say, by some of the disenfranchised in the rural areas to succeed from the union or to develop what they call it the 51st State Initiative to where we would form our own state. That has all now basically morphed into a new effort, and that is to what we call the Phillips County effort. A couple of Phillips County commissioners got an initiative to have one representative per county. So there would be, instead of 65 representatives, there would be 64 because we have 64 counties. Now, our state is supposed to be, our representatives are, in fact, according to population, but that still has not worked out as far as real, true representation for our rural people. And so, as a result, the urbanites, and that would be Denver, Boulder, Golden, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs, They don't understand, first of all, that those of us in the rural areas actually own that property and to they think that they can, because it's a wide open space, that they can trespass and and open gates and climb over fences because it's pretty and they think that they ought to be able to picnic there and so forth. And they don't understand that that is someone's property just like their backyard. It kind of grows to this assumption that we don't have the water either and that we need to have water become into the public domain. Well, that is no different than stealing a person's car out of their driveway. I mean, you don't deny a person use of their property. I don't care what that property is. And probably the hardest thing of all is to educate people to the fact that water is a vested property. If I understand what you're communicating, if there are real water shortages, what do you perceive is the best leadership and stewardship function with respect to the way water could be distributed in in the event of serious shortages? What do you see without violating these vested property rights? That's a very, very good question, uh, Kim. Um, You cannot begrudge someone from selling their water shares, of course. I mean, that's, again, it's because it is a property, a person has the right to also uh, divest of it. That's a given. But on the other hand, I think it would be prudent for city planners to be uh, more cognizant of, for example, baseline acre production which is a basic guide that tells you approximately how much water raw off the land production 
requires, whether it's timber or fishing or uh, mining or agriculture. It doesn't make any difference what the use is, but the raw off-the-land production. And then to be able to say to prospective uh, contractors, uh, yes, we do have the water, or no, we don't have the water. But they don't take that into account at all. Um, and so they, they're always claiming that we're going to have all this new growth and that we've got to find water, and the first place they always go is agriculture. So what good is a population going to be if they don't have food to eat? I agree with you. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. We are living in one of the most exciting and dangerous times in history. Many of us are being challenged to turn away from parasitic systems of enslavement and misery and move into different life-giving activities, commercial opportunities, and communities. Transition is upon us right now. The seizure of the world's natural resources, the poisoning of our food, water, and air, and the total electronic surveillance of our lives is forcing many of us to develop new rules of engagement for being in the world. Doing business today is way more complex and nuanced. The electronic age is a mixed bag. If you want to live in a more humane world, don't confuse electronic communication with real relationships or knowing who your neighbors are or how they're doing or the importance of sitting down with your family and having meals together. This is real life. Practically everything we've been indoctrinated to believe about life and work is out of touch with what's available to us today. New discoveries about non-locality and consciousness are not only mind-boggling, they are game-changers that require us to embrace paradox and ambiguity. Beings and agencies that insist on using deceptive practices, protocols, and instruments for market and industrial domination will eventually realize they are at the tail of a riveting new industrial complex of markets, projects, and products that they never perceived. This new complex is emerging. Receptivity is a human imperative. Imagination is an agency of transport. The current behind the currency matters. And our children and future generations are counting on us to prepare the way for them. I'm Kim Greenhouse. I'm the chief executive officer of the Rainmaking Company, a manifestation agency, a leadership agency, and a development agency. Feel free to call for our Rainmaking Services both on an advisory and development level, 626-398-8652. And back to the show. Let's take a scenario, okay? Okay. Help me through a scenario so I better understand it and the audience can too. I come to Colorado and I work with my dowser and we pick a property that has water on it and I make an offer and I buy that land. By law, do I have to now buy the water rights to it? Oh, yeah. Even if there's no aquifer? You have to purchase, everybody has to purchase the water, even federal. Federal wants you to think that under this waters of the U.S. that federal owns the water. That's not true. Uh, individuals or entities or ditch companies or energy companies own water. And the uh, person who comes in for example, we have fracking here in Colorado. Yeah. All right. Those energy companies have to find that water first. And then they have to find out um, who owns it. And then they have to make an offer for um, that water use. They have to also go through a change of use. If it's, an, if it's already in agriculture, they have to go through a temporary change of use to industrial, that type of thing. And at least finally, one good thing that they are doing is they're basing these on leases or temporary agreements instead of a permanent buyout. Where we really got into trouble um, a few years back is that people were just outright selling their shares instead of um, just leasing it. And so... Um, the end users weren't getting delivery of their water, which was, you know, it just created a, a huge, 
huge mess, and then everybody ended up in water court. And why we even have water court is beyond me. I didn't even know we did. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, it's a to me, it's a kangaroo court, and and um, I have told our our governor that, so I feel very comfortable in saying that on radio <laughs> because um, it's kind of like family court. Uh, anything goes, and then the judge makes a decision. There aren't any clear-cut defendants or plaintiffs. Uh, there's no opportunity to really present evidence or cross-examine witnesses like in a regular court of law. So does that mean that judges can be paid off by any? Yes, ma'am. Okay. All right. That's unfortunate and very sad. What do we call that water court? That's what it's called, water court. <laughs> Is it only unique to Colorado? Yeah. Well, no. There, I think other states probably also have water courts. And and to me, that's what has absolutely separated people's thinking from thinking that water is property. They think, I mean, you know, you. <laughs> as I just told somebody, we don't have backhoe courts. You know, when somebody takes your backhoe, <laughs> go to a special backhoe court to settle it. And so that's where it's really gotten to be a problem. Um, I had a um, sheriff tell me, who is a former FBI uh, agent, tell me that uh, when he was with the FBI, um, actually he asked me the question, he said, do you remember where the FBI headquarters was downtown Denver on Champa Street and across the street? And he said, do you remember there was this three-store or multi-story building? He said, do you realize that three stories in that building were all water attorneys? Oh, my God. (laughs) I didn't know that. I was like, whoa, it doesn't surprise me. But but it's not that complicated unless you're trying to steal it. Um, And then that's that's what makes it so complicated are uh, the... um, is property theft is what makes it so complicated. And that's what gives the uh, the thieves the opportunity to razzle and dazzle with uh, augmentation and surface and ground and CFS and uh, blah, 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 blah. And they can go on into the finite discussing hydrology. Uh, that'd be like discussing, well, you know, the reason why it's okay to steal this backhoe is because its engine runs at... Um, so many miles per hour on this amount of gas and blah, blah, blah. And that's how they justify the theft. So is this mostly the mining companies or who, no, who do you think no, these no, people no, are? No. Oh, no, no. Um, What's your gut sense on who the players are? Well, it's the same formula that's used um, across the United States. And again, in particular, the states of the West that are under the Spanish law, and that would include California. You know, I think it's many entities okay. all, all jockeying for power and control. Let's go back to the scenario I gave you. I come in, I buy a piece of property in Colorado, I buy the land, and I go to apply for water rights because I've already deduced that there's water there. Who am I going to? Who am I applying to? Well, you have to apply with a state water engineer, which is okay. Now, that is all right because they're the ones who keep track of where the water is and who owns what, and, and uh, that's completely appropriate. And is that done before I drill? Oh, yes. So what if they say, well, there's no water there, and I say, well, there is? Well, then that becomes an extremely interesting subject that's never been challenged. Okay. So what determines whether they give permission or not? Prior rights? Yes. If it's already fully appropriated, then you would have to go to the person who they can identify as owning those shares on that property. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to make sure I understand something. Am I understanding that a person can buy land, go to open up the water that they already deduced is on the land, but the land actually is encumbered because a major resource on the land is already encumbered? Yes? See, you're asking some really new questions that I don't know that, well, I as I'm not a hydrologist, and yeah. so I've never, you know, I'm sure maybe some hydrologists have been posed that question, but Kim, that's a fascinating, fascinating question. Well, thank you. So I buy the land, right? A group of us buy this land. Right. I come to Colorado. Mm-hmm. There's water 
down below where we say there's water down below. Mm-hmm. I apply for the water rights. And the next question is, where are the names of the people who own the water rights throughout America? Why don't we have access to that? You can find it online to a certain extent. And in fact, I just uh, had a meeting this morning with Representative uh, Lori Sane and gave her um, the um, incorporations of all of the water in Colorado. But I cannot find the ben- date of beneficial use. And so I'm thinking, on, online anyway, so I'm thinking I'm going to have to physically go to the archives and hand write in those dates of beneficial use. I know they're somewhere because water engineers have them and they, they have to use them. Why wouldn't that be public information? Well, it probably is. Maybe I just haven't yeah. pinpointed it Yeah, yet. no, I hear you. I hear. I, I don't just... think it's anything that's hidden. I just think that um, I have not yet put my hands on it. Right, and maybe it never needed to be public information, but I think now... It probably would be useful to be public information. Now, I was told that T-Bone Pickens is buying up everything in sight with water rights in the United States. Have you heard that? Oh, yes. Uh huh. What do you think about that? What's your feeling about that? Would you like to just comment either way about it? Well, if he was actually buying up the water, if he's doing it um, properly and legally and, and working with the people who af- actually own the shares, um, I can't begrudge either the seller or the buyer, but if he's stealing the water through um, some rather ingenious ways of manipulating the in-stream flows, of course, I'd be really opposed to that. Right. About 20-some-odd years ago, I was told that England had come into Northern California and bought up the water rights in Sacramento. And that they had gone to India and bought up water rights there and were selling the Indian people back their own water. And I want to be out in front with this, with you and with the audience. I am for free markets, but I have a major problem with entities coming from outside this country and buying up our water rights. I have a violent feeling about it. And I have a violent feeling about it for other people from other countries because a part of me feels that wherever people are geographically, that's their water. And I don't feel that that should be legal to just take people's water in their natural area where they live. It just drives me crazy. Well, I could be wrong, but I'm just telling you how I feel. I would agree with that feeling if those people became compromised sellers um, instead of willing sellers. They float that term around quite lavishly. They say, oh, you know, you're a, they're a willing seller. Well, no. What happens is that these outside entities will create an environment of hell right. for that owner. And then go in and make a deal with them. It's called a hostile takeover on Wall Street, and it's the same formula where they will break them down until they're so decapitalized and so spent both mentally, physically, and financially that they have no other recourse but to throw up their hands and say, I give up. Yeah, I hear you. Are you familiar with NAFTA? Yeah. It was the trade trade, agreement. Now, I'm not an expert in NAFTA, but my understanding is that NAFTA was the instrument that paved the way for the confiscation or the takeover of water and resources. Oh, no, I have not heard that connection, but... um... Again, I'm not an expert, but the way it was explained to me is that it has been instrumental in making a play to take resources easier. Now... I have to ask you about this other thing, and you may or may not know about it, but it's the new trade agreement. It's called TPP, known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And basically, it has to do with talks with Australia, Brunei, Chile, New Zealand, and Singapore. And there's talk about expanding eight other countries from various regions, and its purpose is to manage trade, promote growth, and regionally integrate the economies of the Asia-Pacific region. Apparently, also, there are more countries involved, which includes the United States, Vietnam, Peru, Mexico, Malaysia, Japan, and Canada. I know that um, 
this is another area where the general public gets very confused is the difference between fair and free trade. Right. We don't want free trade. We want fair trade. Right. And we have not enjoyed fair trade for what? I don't know how many years, but a long time. Do you know how we would understand the distinction? I know how it sounds, but could you distinguish the two? Fair trade is where, um, for example, you have an agreement with that country uh, on a balance of import and export with the proper taxes. Right. We have free trade agreements with countries that are importing um, junk and um, to our to our peril because a lot of noxious weeds and a lot of our diseases and a lot of our um, uh, a lot of the um, animal diseases and egg you know diseases are imported. Uh, hoof and mouth, for example, we have a, a deal here where. They're, they're entertaining the idea one more time of importing beef from Brazil. And Brazil is not a hoof and mouth disease free country. Uh, like the U.S. has been hoof and mouth disease free since, I don't know, 1958. And, uh, same with mad cow. Um, we do not have mad cows. Uh, I can't pronounce the long name of it, spongiform encephalitis spongiform something or other. Anyway, um, that is imported, has been imported into the country at the complete peril of the U.S. cattle industry. And so that's the difference between fair trade and free trade. If you were to um, put those um, um, uh, conditions uh, that um, had teeth in them, then that's fair trade. You don't just import everything from uh, China and uh, wherever and not have an opportunity to uh, make sure that they're completely disease-free and that we can, in turn, export our goods to their country. I am under the impression after doing research for several years that there are certain appropriated areas where people from outside the country and entities from outside the country can come in where they get tax free for X number of years or pay very little money to rent or own whatever they have. And a lot of the foreign trade zones have been given away, just given. I find this a part of it abhorrent that we in this country don't have access to the foreign trade zones, that foreign entities are being given tax-free business opportunities. It just bugs me. I'm not saying I'm right about how I feel, but it bothers me. Well, again, that's not fair trade. (laughs) Right. See, that's completely free trade. That's where the burden goes on um, the U.S., manufacturers and and producers and so forth and so on. Um, I mean, it is crippling so many of our industries like our, well, I think the steel industry is a really good example of a, of a gross abuse of trade. Talk about it. My dad, Lloyd, used to be in the steel business for like See? 40 years and he was a salesman for the Gary Steel Company and he helped run that company with the other owners I wish he was alive to talk about it, but talk about it. Well, I wish he was too, because that's basically um, the ability to import uh, cheap steel has just crippled the U.S. steel industry fiercely. Interesting. I didn't know that. When we have incredible steel makers right here in the U.S. Talk a little bit, if you would, about property rights in general now that are not necessarily connected with water, but what you would like to say to the public about what you've noticed about property rights and your interest in it. Well, the biggest thing of all, Kim, is the fear level. People really need to get beyond this fear level of thinking that they don't have any rights and that the government is the everything, the omnipresence, know-all, uh, provide-all, and so forth and so on. We have to get back to the, to the um, foundation of 
completely knowing that we are the government and that we are the one who make the determinations and that we can start today by protecting our own property. Uh, there is not... Um, no one is above the law, including our president, and we're not holding we're not holding our government employees to that. Um, agencies are completely uh, errant. They're running amok. Their overreach is just um, it's chilling the overreach, and it's because we are allowing them to do it. We are not taking any uh, steps to protect our property. And it's really actually very straightforward and simple, the ways that we can protect our property. The first thing we should do um, is post a no trespassing sign, and one in particular that has no immunity for government parties, because no one can access your property without a warrant without, um, for example, in pursuit of a criminal that they've actually witnessed crossing your property or a fire. You know, there are those exceptions. That's a given. But generally speaking, no one can access your property without your permission. So that's where we have to start is by stopping um, the EPA, the DOI, uh, the USDA, whoever from even coming on our property. I think we need to talk about the EPA because, you know, in my growing up years in the United States, I was under the impression falsely that the EPA was for the public benefit. And only in the last five years did I really get the overreach that this agency is in fact set up and doing something very different than we understand. And I'd like you to share a couple examples and really bring it to the public, how they function, what is occurring with them, what are they doing? Well, first of all, right out of the chute, I completely dismiss any agency that engages in knowingly in genocide. And I consider the EPA as knowingly engaging in genocide in respect to the fact that they refused to lift the band on the DDT. Say that again. Okay. DDT is a safe, proven way to eliminate mosquitoes so that Africans, for example, don't die of malaria. Okay. All right. Millions are dying from ma malaria because the EPA refuses to lift the ban on DDT. Rachel Carson came along about the same time that um, Nixon formed the EPA in 7273, and um, Ruckelhaus was the first director of the EPA. And um, when uh, Rachel Spring had, or Rachel uh, Carson had her Silent Spring book. It was more like an opportunity to say, aha, you know, uh, as a depopulationist, we can just go ahead and let all those people die by banning DDT. The scientist who, whose first studies thought maybe DDT had some harmful side effects, uh, soft shells on, on uh, bird eggs and that type of thing, when he found... Uh, Further research found that um, it was it was safe, that it was all right, and that it was a great way to eliminate mosquitoes. I mean, heck, that's how they built the Panama Canal, for crying out loud, uh, is by using DDT. And um, anyway, um, they refused to see the scientists. They shut the door on the scientists. They would not let him back in again, period. And so they've been banning DDT ever since. And then it's interesting, some of the big politicians and people like Bill Gates go in and do joint venture deals between the big players in the world, mm -hmm. and they go in and they sell malaria medication. It's a farce. 
Well, it is a farce. And, you know, those little nets that they tell you on television, you know, if you just send $19 a month, we can put a little net over this little child's bed. And, you know, all they need to do is go in and spray the DDT, get rid of the damn mosquitoes, and save millions of Paul Driesen and um, I think Robert Novak wrote an excellent, excellent article called Greens Lie, Africans Die, and it's probably really one of the best overviews of that I have ever read. I haven't read it, but I'd like to read it. It's excellent, and that's where I have trouble with the EPA right out of the chute. Uh, To me, they lost all credibility by refusing to lift the ban on DDT. Well, I'll tell you, for me, when they lost credibility, and I don't even know what you know, Mm -hmm. when they determined that carbon dioxide is in fact uh you know a poison that was it for me yeah well and they convinced the american public and the rest of the world that food for plants and something that we're made of is poison i know they completely confused climate science they confused the whole understanding the difference between the different elements in the atmosphere it's so mind-boggling what they did but they are the police agency for the people in charge. That's, yes, exactly. They're a green environmental fake police agency. And uh, they're right. doing the bidding of the people that have created the fake climate change. There is climate change, but it's not what people think it is. There's always climate change. I've done 37 shows on this. I even got a death threat for doing it. <laughs> but no, I did. I was shocked. My first show. And I want you to know, and the public knows if they've listened to me, I am an environmental advocate, okay? And someone would have said, if they met me five years ago, oh, you're a green, you know, my last name's Greenhouse, but you're green, (laughs) right? You're green, Greenhouse. But the reality is that when you really peel back the layers and you look and you stay open, it's mind-boggling the deliberate confusion of the public. Oh, it has been deliberate, and that's a good word, Kim. That's uh, exactly. It's been very calculating. Um, in Colorado, uh, there's even a, a – a, it's called the Blueprint, and it's an actual honest-to-goodness business plan that some parties uh, put together uh, that they are executing to a T to manipulate politics in Colorado. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, it's brilliant, um, but you're right. It's deliberate, and the EPA right now is on steroids because now it's going to take control of all of the waters, what they call the waters of the U.S. Well, you know, how's that? Po- wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. How is that possible? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and how do they have all the-, the water is owned by someone? Wait, how do they even have the authority to they operate don't. like that? They, they have don't. no authority. They, they have zero authority. And it's it, this thing is really, really interesting to me in particular because um, I kind of stumbled onto something by accident with the flood uh, that our farm was hit by that uh, September 13th flood in Colorado. And as a result of that, we did finally have Governor Hickenlooper here um, April 17th. We showed him one of the bridges that is operating at about 30% capacity because it has never been dredged. The South Platte River has never been dredged. And I suggested to the governor that he get a hold of the Army Corps, Sea Daughter, Union Pacific, or someone, and get that river dredged underneath that uh, overpass. And his response was sort of interesting. It was kind of hesitant and and kind of puzzled and kind of, hmm, uh, I don't know. Um, gosh, um, I, I'll try. Anyway, I thought it was rather an interesting response from a governor. And so I did some further research and uh, talked with some property owners along the Missouri River in Nebraska and Iowa and found that the Army Corps had built sandbars on the Missouri to accommodate the piping plover and then um, did not 
operate the gates properly and allowed for the catastrophic extent of the flood on the Missouri a couple few years ago. Wow. And I got to thinking about this, and I thought, hmm, okay, let me see if I understand this. The Army Corps has never, ever, ever dredged the South Platte River, and yet it's playing around with the Missouri River, and then it hit me, the word navigable. The South Platte River and most rivers and tributaries do not fall under the statute historic definition of navigable. But now the EPA would have you think that they have control and the Army Corps has control over all the water just because it's water, regardless of its genesis, regardless of whether or not it falls under the definition of navigable. So I find that really, really interesting. And it's like, oh, okay. So that's why the Army Corps never dredged the South Platte. So the EPA can't have it both ways. They can't be duplicitous about this, can they, Kim? Wow, I'm just totally blown out. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is interesting. It's scary, too. It's very interesting. But the property owners, Kim, this is, again, the most critical thing. The property owners they have a duty now to keep the EPA and the Army Corps, all of the above, off their property. You know that most people are scared to fight these entities. Well, they're going to have to get over it or they're going to have to give up their country. Definitely. What do you think about the Bureau of Land Management? The biggest liars of mankind? Uh, I've heard... The Bureau of Land Management is apparently also heavily into the acquisition of resources and actually the sequestering of resources. Is that correct? Let me me put it this way, Kim. About 20 years ago, I thought it was rather giddy and sort of coy and kind of joking um, and kind of cute to be able to just sort of say, Oh, yeah, you know, the Nature Conservancy and the Center for Biological Diversity and all of these uh, eco-groups, they um, office with uh, the DOI, the Department of Interior. And now, 20 years later, they do. (laughs) They're partners. They're buddies, and they work together, and uh, our taxpayer dollars go to fund the, for example, the Nature Conservancy, which is the world's largest real estate company, and they all work together in tying up our property. And in respect to the BLM, um, and the which is uh, the BLM is the Bureau of Land Management, and that is under the Department of Interior, and the Forest Service is under the USDA or the uh, United States Department of Ag. So um, they're um, under two different um, agencies, but they all are kind of working in collusion. And I think I can say that, Kim, because I've been to enough meetings and have observed and watched how this all operates over the past 15 years um, to basically just get us off the land. And isn't that been happening? A couple of years ago, I interviewed Karen Bud Phelan, the law offices of Bud Phelan, to talk about what's going on with the confiscation of the land. Is it worse than it was even a few years ago? It's on, it's on speed, yes. Um, they have ramped it up, and they are going at mock speed. Uh, what they do is they will, um, or I should say kind of the overriding thing is uh, we we're, 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 we have strong suspicions that one of the reasons they're doing this is to collateral, collateralize loans from China. So um, they're not only tying up property, getting rid of property, private property on government land, but now they're starting to overlap onto private property, deeded land. And so that's why now they're finally starting to get people's attention because before 
people had a tendency to just dismiss and say, oh, you know, those those welfare cowboys, those ranchers, you know, using that uh, federal land for free and ruining it and destroying it and everything. And <clears throat> um, they, they, they need to go. They need to get off the land or like John Marvel with Western watersheds, you know, calf free and 93 and stuff like that. So they had this big push to just get all of the cattle grazers off the land and, uh, they used the spotted owl very skillfully to shut down logging. And I mean, they, they use the Endangered Species Act and they tie all of this together to essentially get you off the land. Now, this is where you had your, um, Angus McIntosh and Angus can explain better than anyone how it is that a person has, in fact, vested property or equitable title to property on government land. And there's no such thing as public land, by the way. It's either government or federal land. Isn't government and federal the same? Yeah, but there's no such thing as public. You hear people saying, well, that's public land. No, you know, all the land's been settled. All right, I hear you. But anyway, the only thing that federal owns on federal land is the naked land, the naked dirt. Whoever puts the forage above that and the beneficial water to use above that, or the beneficial water to use, excuse me, gains what is called equitable title. Now, you can take, for example, Bundy, where I don't really, you know, you have to really keep it, keep your head really clear about that because... Um, I don't really agree with um, some of the some of the tactics that Cliven Bundy used. I certainly understood or and understand his total frustration with working with the federal government because they flat out lie to you, and I can understand how he could have been lied to in respect to. Um, his AUMs, Animal Unit Month, and um, how it came to be that he was made promises and the promises weren't kept by the BLM. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the finite of his situation. So I'm just saying that I can understand if that happened, I can understand his frustration. Uh, but he did make some errors in that he confused the public uh, with his definition of state and and public and federal, and that's unfortunate um, because Cliven Bundy, and then I would hear it on Hannity and O'Reilly over and over until I just wanted to scream at them. They kept saying, well, what's wrong with uh, Bundy's cows eating some of that federal grass? Well, no, that's not federal grass. That was Bundy's grass. I mean, that is the fact. See, Bundy owned the forage, and he owned the beneficial use of the water. This is really the underbelly, the mosaic, if you will, of the situation that never gets distilled to the public until exactly. now, until exactly. right now. It's really quite simple to understand. It really, you know, and I think the hardest part of people understanding it, Kim, is the fact that it is so simple. Well, let me say this to you. Most of the laws connected with property in this country and resources are not in the focus of the American people. They don't know the laws. They don't know the inner workings. And particularly when it comes to land and resources, I did a show on clouded titles about a year and a half ago. I did two shows, one with Dave Krieger and one with Dave Krieger and Ellen Brown, who wrote Web of Debt. Okay. I just interviewed another person who had her home confiscated in Colorado by a major bank. This woman had her whole life turned upside down. It was a total illegal forfeiture. How they got away with it, what she's doing, and the remedy she's now providing. She had to go in and learn securities, law, real estate, titles, the whole bit. Wonderful. I, I want you to I hear look it forward to that. because this is about the confiscation of over 80 million properties in the United States and how the banks are getting away with it. That means 
that you can own your own property and not know that it's owned by a bunch of investors in the back end who actually own it and how MERS and other agencies in concert created a system, a virulent criminal system to go in and confiscate land and properties. Wow. It is an unbelievable siege that has happened. It's the worst virus that has taken place in the real estate industry in the United States. It's so bad. It's so insidious that most realtors don't know about it. Most brokers don't know about it. Most title companies don't know about it. And most buyers of real estate don't know about it. How do you like that? Boy, that is, yeah, that's shocking. I look forward to that show, Kim. I will send it to you. My God. (laughs) So this is about using securitization to confiscate all properties and get away with it because the securitization is a different animal. And how do you get the securitization of property? You hide the mechanisms by which the confiscation happens flat out. It's a heist. It's okay, a huge now I'm heist. I'm going to be awake all night tonight. It's a huge heist. <laughs> and I'm out with it. I'm like telling the American public, if you're going to your realtors and your brokers and your title companies and you're not getting this piece of information and doing your due diligence, you deserve what you get. Well, okay, you know, you said a very key thing there too, is that um, if you don't do your own homework and you don't do your own due diligence and you don't take those steps to protect your property, then you will lose it. What's really tragic about that, though, is the ripple effect it has on your neighbor. It's on everything. Here's the thing. I've tried to help friends of mine who were buying properties. And you know how it gets. It gets crazy when you're about to just sign on the dotted line, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you get an investment in getting it, right? It's an emotional purchase. Sure. It's like stopping somebody who's about to have an orgasm. It's pretty hard, okay? Let's Mm -hmm. let's tell the truth about that. Mm -hmm. That's what happens in these big deals and real estate transactions. People get invested, okay? Yeah. So if you go to somebody who's in the middle of a transaction and you say, look, You could buy this property and never own it and never know it. You need to go back and do some other due diligence. Very difficult, but you know what? I'd rather help my friends and people that I can be of assistance to than watch them go down and five years later, two years later, 10 years later, they don't own anything. Gosh, yeah. Well, that's a chain of title and we learned that really hard and fast here in the West. They came after us first, Kim, And that's why I think your resource, your domestic resource providers understand this scenario better than most because the resource providers are the ones who have and and need the land in order to produce the the, uh, food, fuel, and fiber, if you will. And so we've been on the receiving end of all of this abuse for about uh, maybe 40 years or since the EPA and the ESA came in. Um, and, and, and so we're, we're sort of intimately familiar with well, good all for of you. Their- well, I, I would be very interested to hear your response to a, the Dave Krieger, Ellen Brown interview, yeah. and yeah. as well as the interview with Donna, and I should know her last name, but it's more complicated. <laughs> I just did it. I'm in two time zones right now. I'm somewhere between Spain and United States. So I'm kind of verklempt. I think it's Steen Camp is her last name. Sorry, Donna. But that'll come out next week. Excellent. Excellent. I look forward to that. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the public? Well, just one brief thing. When you, um, if you do own gas, oil, and mineral rights, make damn sure that if you sell your property and you intend to retain your gas, oil, and mineral rights, make damn sure that is so noted on the deed. Got it. Very good. It has to be in writing on the deed. It can't be in your title documents. I mean, that's not enough. I mean, what I mean is it can be in your title documents, but that's not enough. You have to have, I intend to retain my G-O- M's period on the deed. So that's my last word of advice. <laughs> You're a very brave woman. I want to tell you that. You really Thank are. You. We are in we are in exciting times, but we're also in very treacherous times. And for you to speak out the way you do, you're very brave. Thank you, Kim. Well, so are you, and I appreciate it very much. Thank you. I think this is the bravest interview I've done so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I hope I don't get a knock at my door.
I'll well, throw I water on them. I don't have any little drone mosquitoes <laughs> on my windows. <laughs> Thank you so if I much. I do, I do. You know, like my husband says, you know, uh, what are you going to do? Kill me? We'll take a number and stand in line. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Ronnie Bell Sylvester. You can reach her by going to landandwaterusa.com. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing for the United States to help maintain a good quality of life and the integrity of this country. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim.